Hey, everybody. Happy New Year. Welcome back to the Live Fit Break Free podcast, episode number five. We are kicking off the year with an amazing guest. Just an amazing guy. It's actually our second consecutive guest who is a Army combat veteran entrepreneur, just a humble heart and a passion for helping people. Dale King, amazing guy. I can't wait for you to hear his story. If you haven't heard it, you just have to hear it. He's amongst many things. He is currently the subject or star, if you will, of a documentary called Small Town Strong. It's about his experience returning from the army to find a hometown that was ravaged by the opioid epidemic and doing something about it. He started a CrossFit gym um, and opened up his doors to the community. Yes, to get people fit, but in the progression of that business, it wound up being kind of a, a haven for a community that was recovering from addictions and unemployment and things like that. And that decision to start that gym has just led to a series of connections and decisions in his life that is just just an amazing story. Starting multiple businesses, appearing on the show Shark Tank and getting a deal, and now being the the star, if you will, of an amazing documentary that just started streaming on Amazon Prime this week. You can find it in multiple places. Again, it's called Small Town Strong. We'll be promoting it across the Alton Fitness channels. But I can't be more honored and privileged to welcome to the show and to introduce to you Dale King. We're here with Dale King. Dale, thanks so much for being here, bud. Oh, man. Thank you for having me on. It's my pleasure. Dale, you know, just to, to kind of orient the, the audience to you, I'm going to ask you, you know, go back and just kind of tell us your story a little bit. You're doing so many amazing things and, I, and hopefully we'll be able to cover all of them in the limited time we have. But I mean, just a quick, again, another resume drop, Army veteran, combat veteran, owner of PSKC CrossFit. You got that awesome beanie there. I see you're, you're rocking today. Yeah, Doc Spartan, you've been on Shark Tank, and I hope you don't mind. I'm going to ask you a little bit about that experience because I don't know how many humans can say they've, they've been on the show Shark Tank, but we all know what it is. And I know you're a family man. I know you've got young kids and a wife and all that to say, you're a busy guy. You're a super busy guy. So we're going to dive in, man. But if you could just maybe tell us a little bit, start with you know, growing up, where are you from? And walk us through, you know, up until the point where you decided to join the army and maybe why, but yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Born and raised here in, in uh, beautiful Portsmouth, Ohio and in, in Southern Ohio. Graduated high school and back in the day in 1999. Played football and my dad was, my dad was in the army. So I kind of saw that growing up. Like he wasn't in the army while I was growing up, but I always knew that, you know, he was a Vietnam vet. Uh, a lot of guys in my in my family were, and so <clears throat> I pretty much knew I wanted to join the military in some capacity. And fortunate enough to get a Army ROTC scholarship, so went to a small school in Columbus, Ohio, and so for from ninety nine to two thousand three, got my got my degree in international relations, and then in oh three when I graduated, I became a commissioned officer and went right away to military intelligence school and went through that and then got assigned to my my first unit was got a got a good break and got assigned as a intel officer to special forces group and there was a high op tempo at that time around 2000 2004 5 and 6 and uh, spent a couple of deployments to Iraq real quick so portsmouth what what was it like doing life in portsmouth growing up before you went away to school that was great man so you know 
grew up in the 90s pretty much and it was like one of those quintessential like small towns where you could always tell where the kids were by where it was a gangle of bikes outside somebody's house and you know playing basketball on the on the playground on school schoolyard basketball and playing football in the churchyards and just real small small town small community everybody kind of knows each other everything kind of revolves around sports and athletics and you know it was Portsmouth has been on the decline really kind of ever since the 60s and 70s when the, you know American manufacturing started started leaving but you know it was, it was safe it was good and uh, it was just something that you know I was very fortunate to have a have a good all you know all American upbringing in a small town since you gave your graduation year I graduated 03 okay so you would have been one of the seniors hazing me in yep. the locker room as a freshman, yep. I'm pretty sure. Mentoring, <laughs> mentoring you. Mentor, mentoring, yeah. right. I got mentored pretty good, Dale, when I was coming <laughs> up. But And then jumping into, so you gave us the, the time up from college to becoming an intelligence officer. But for, for you know, I'm a veteran, you're a veteran, obviously, I get this, but the pathways to becoming an, an officer in the Army, right? You have the, is it the West Point kind of track yep. where you do you do your undergrad studies there? You did the the other track, right? Yeah, I was not smart enough to go to West Point, basically. So I didn't didn't have high enough ACT score, but you can apply for ROTC stands for Reserve Officer Training Corps. So it's a basically you apply for a scholarship, and if you meet the applications and or meet the requirements, and they think you're a good applicant, they'll they'll pay for your undergrad school, and you're basically under contract to become an officer as soon as you graduate to perform your required service, whether that's four or six years or whatever it's going to be. So you graduate undergrad, you do your training, you go through all that. How many deployments did you say, Dale? Two. So I went on two, two, deployment. two deployments, left late 2004, 2004, 2005, came home for a little bit, and then back in 2006. I know this is a broad question to ask, but what, what was that like? Oh, man. You know, it's funny. It's like... Dude, that's all uh, shit. It's 20 years ago. Holy shit. Now, we, my friend and I joke about this all the time, but like, we're now the old Vietnam guys that we used to see, like, oh shit, like that guy was a nom, you know? And it, it was obviously, a, you know, one of the foundational transformational experiences you could have deploying in a combat like that. You know, just kind of seeing like really to explain it to somebody is like you see the absolute worst that humanity has to offer while seeing the absolute best that humanity has to offer. Your spectrum of experience within that is is incredible. So as I mentioned, I feel like I have to, you know, go on aside real quick. So as I mentioned, I'm a veteran, right? Yeah. You know, when I, when people that know me, friends and family that don't have as deep an understanding of the veterans and how it's structured... When they say to me, like, thank you for your service on Veterans Day, to this day, I get uncomfortable because I'm not a combat veteran. So I, I believe, and I have the deepest respect for you and anyone that, that you know, did that and had that commitment and saw the, the best and worst of humanity. But I, I like to, I just want to say out there to any of my listeners too, it's like, I think even within, you know, veterans, there's, there's kind of levels to that commitment, right? And, yeah. and I always lead, like, you're, you're actually the second combat veteran I've had on the show. And I always lead whenever I talk about you as a guest coming on like combat veteran, because that is a specific thing. Mad respect to all veterans, right? But I think a guy like you that, that did that has seen those things and brought those experiences back, especially when we're going to get into the things that you're doing. But 
you know, taking that wisdom and building on it and helping other people so much, so much respect, so, such a heart for, for what you do. And I, I said that when we chatted on the phone and I want to say it here in this context too. So thank you for your, for your service, man. Thank you, man. And, and like, I feel the same way. Like my, I, you know, I, I had a very fortunate couple of deployments. Uh, so I feel the same way. Like, yeah, I was over there, but my experience was nothing compared to what guys went through, you know, as far as like actual, actual combat, you know, everybody kind of feels that way, I guess, is, I guess is what I'm saying. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's just like, we all, we all volunteered to go and, and some people, some people either whether you look at it fortunately or unfortunately got selected to, to go overseas or not. So, yeah. you know, but at the end of the day is like, we all raised our hand and, and volunteered for service. So, yes. Amen. Amen to that. What was it like when you first came home in two ways, both adjusting to being out of the service, but then also kind of reacclimating to your, to your home where you grew up. Yeah. So I came back in the summer of 2007. It, so I think I had, was that a year, a year from my last deployment, I want to say roughly. So I pretty much knew that I was getting out and it's funny, like Portsmouth was the last place I thought I was going to come back home to. I was basically going to go like the contracting route, you know, work for a SAIC or who's Allen Hamilton or somebody and, go out of DC or work for a three letter agency somehow. So the fact of like an opportunity to come back to Portsmouth was, was pretty, pretty wild. Um, so I took a job working for the department of energy about 30 minutes away from, from town. Uh, I thought it was, was going to be awesome. Like I was like, you know, get to go home. All my family and friends are, are um, still here. Uh, but when I came home, you know, that roughly that almost 10 year period that I was gone between service and, and the, in college, uh, it was like, it's, it was unrecognizable compared to when I left. Like, you know, I'd already talked about, you know, that idyllic kind of small town American upbringing. And what had happened was like the opioid crisis kind of propped itself up and, and took roots during that 10 year period. So a lot of my friends that I graduated with were either in jail or, or on pills, just complete like economic devastation. A lot of businesses had packed up and left definitely no new businesses were coming and in a lot of ways it was just like went from one war zone to another but you know this war zone was in was in our backyard so this is from if i'm tracking from 1999 to 2009 so in that decade it feels like yeah. that that's really when the opioid epidemic really kind of swept in and took hold of portsmouth no that you're exactly right you know, track the the history of the problem but you know the mid to late 90s is is kind of when uh, Oxycontin and other um, opioid pain pills were were starting to come on scene and being heavily promoted by the pharmaceutical companies and then working hand in hand with corrupt physicians essentially and then you know you get a population of people uh, that's addicted and that that doesn't go away if anything it it only grows and the big problem was was no one was saying anything was wrong with it and presuming here right but unemployment in Portsmouth, was that also kind of going up? Cause you mentioned earlier, you hinted at maybe manufacturing or jobs were kind of leaving the air or, or had that been happening at that point for a while already? Yeah. So that, that had been going on for a while. So what essentially you had is like, you had a, a good segment of the population who um, were already not kind of feeling worthy mm. or they had already had pre-existing job related injuries from, you know, not in Portsmouth. We don't have coal mines here, but just in the region, et cetera. Like, spread out in the region so you know you kind of had it was real easy for guys to want or get access to to pain pills 
versus like having something to do and looking forward to a good job and, and all that stuff like that, that was non-existent here. Gosh. Okay. And because I know your story, I know CrossFit is is a part of your story. Did you pick up CrossFit while you were in the army, by the way? Yeah, man. So I started crossing in 2007. Okay. You know, myself and, and other guys that uh, were in the uh, same unit as I were like really interested in it. Thought it was stupid and the dumbest thing ever. You had two camps, really. You had like guys who liked to lift and you had guys who like were into endurance sports. And those two subsets never really co-mingled in, in the middle. So the was like, yeah, dude, this, they're saying this stuff is like pretty gnarly and pretty hard. So we're like, yeah, it can't be that bad. And then we realized it was pretty terrible. Were you in the lifting camp being a football player? Oh, I was definitely in the lifting camp. I was definitely, in, yeah, I was definitely in the lifting camp. By no means would I ever be confused as a runner. All right. So you get exposed to CrossFit. What about, what about CrossFit? appealed to you because I'll, I'll tell you i mean i i'm just riffing right now but if you grab 10 people who work out and put them through one crossfit class because of the difficulty because of that like strenuous activity and the explosive movements nine out of ten are going to be like no thanks i'll go do what frankly is easier what was it about you and your mentality like oh this is hard and i love it yeah it was well a i think you you use the term it exposed my lack of fitness really mm. So when you look at like military and first responders, like fitness is a part of your job. The more, the more capacity you have to perform work, the better you're going to be at your job. And quite honestly, like the fitness world in the nineties and early, well, from the prior to CrossFit was just peddling like bullshit. Um, you know, like on Mondays is like international chest day. Then it was like back and buys and then legs. And then you always cooked it off with 20 minutes on the elliptical. And somehow like that was, elite level of fitness. Well, that really didn't work. Uh, so this methodology kind of exposed you that like you didn't have to segment your training. Like you could do it all together. You could lift and run and kind of do it for time. So I'd say like the first real thing was like understanding, being exposed to it that like, holy shit, like I am not in, in shape at the level that I think I should be. And the other thing was like, it was hard. Like I, I enjoyed the, the fact that it was hard when the workout was over, like not actually doing it. And then it was subjecting me to a wide variety of things that I had never done before. Uh, I knew, I knew how to lift in the conventional sense. I did not know how to lift. I did not know how to do any sort of gymnastics movements. I didn't know mm -hmm. how to do any sort of, you know, Olympic lifting. So it was always like due to my like ADD nature, like there was always something that you would go in the gym and every day would be different and it'd be something that you could work on. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I plan on going deep into CrossFit later, but I, I want to ask you, cause you mentioned every day is different. I think that's one of the biggest leaps. Like, so me myself, I think I was texting you like joking around leading up to this conversation that I've just started dabbling in, in that type of CrossFit style, you know, explosive movement. And these, I was introduced to these things called man makers. Anyone yeah. listening, if you don't know what a man maker is, go look it up and then go do it. And tell us how you feel because <laughs> you'll feel pretty bad. But the, the point the point there with the with the CrossFit style thing, that for me, the biggest leap, because I'm a very structured, disciplined type person, I like routine. I like knowing what's next. I like everything to kind of be the same. So when I've really dived into CrossFit programming lately, one of the things that I have to like kind of break free from is this idea that it's okay to show up every day mm -hmm. and do something that has similarities, but is 
basically different Mm -hmm. and not building towards like some goal, like progressive overload in the gym or like, Hey, I want to improve my one rep max. It's like, you're just constantly competing against yourself doing those movements from a previous time. Is that right, Dale? Yeah. And that's the thing is there, there, there can be over prioritization on the competitive side of it. And that's where it can kind of lead to injury. Like I would say of all the dumb things I've done in the gym is because it's my ego has been involved with it. Mm -hmm. I wasn't ready to do the things that I was attempting to do. But point in saying that is the only person you should compete is against yourself. And and then you kind of have to understand if you do this for a long time, like you're, you know, you're not, your scores probably will not be as good as they were 10 years ago. Mm. I mean, obviously that's just like, uh, that's just things, how things go. So you need to be competitive with yourself at where you are at that point in your life. Love that. Yeah. I love that. And if anyone's out there considering a CrossFit program or CrossFit style program for both of us, I'm highly, highly encouraged to step into that world. Everything today says the bro split should be gone and gone for good. And that's what Dale was kind of referring to there, the international chest day. But man, if you're not training for your VO2 max, you're not training your baseline cardio, strength moves, all those things and and pushing yourself, stacking bricks, as Dale said, then uh, you need to start doing that. So I'm with you on that, man. That's awesome. Yeah, man. So when you were, when you were in the army, so when you first started doing CrossFit, did, did y'all have like a, like a certified coach or something that was walking you through it? Like, what did that training look like? Dude. So this was like, this was like the ancient days of CrossFit on the internet. So you would literally like, you would go to the website and every day they would post a different workout and then they may or may not have posted like a video along with it, like an exercise, like a movement demo or like a full on workout demo. So it was just like learning by doing Mm. and then then figuring out a facility or somewhere that actually had access to the tools. Like 2007, rowers were not a thing. Like rowers were not like available like they are now. Bumper plates were not available like they are now. A lot of this stuff was like you would do it homemade or you just kind of figure out your, your version of it. And then once, you know, in my journey, it was just like you did it on your own and then if you thought when and if like you want to take a deeper dive into it uh you would take like what they call their level one course and that's like a weekend course that really kind of it's one of the best things that you could do to learn about you know health and fitness really and then it certifies you to uh, to coach other people down the road if you want to do it so but no there was there was no coach there was no performance specialist it was a bunch of dudes trying to figure it out I love it. I bet you look back at that time fondly, those dudes figuring it out. You probably were having a blast, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And just getting thrashed. And yeah, man, it was it was a fun time for sure. You had metal plates. And then, you know, if you were in the MWR gym on post, like you had to, you had to like kind of carve out your own little area and then make sure you like you couldn't drop plates. It was, it was a lot of people were getting kicked out of gyms early on. So cool. So Dale King, amongst other things on his resume, the, one of the OGs of CrossFit. I love it. All right. So back to Portsmouth, you're coming back. You've got this, this passion sounds like for at least three years now, right? So 2007, you picked up CrossFit, you've got some, some certs, you come in you're looking around, you're seeing friends and other people, your town is different. Talk us through the decision to, to start your CrossFit gym, PSKC. Portsmouth Spartan Kettlebell Club. 
as well. Kettlebell Club, Portsmouth yep. Spartan Kettlebell. Love it. So talk us through that decision, man. What what sparked that interest? And then what what was that like? It was completely like accidental and I had to be talked into it. So I was getting basically I was getting to the point where I was getting kicked out of the of the local gym here in town. I'd have to like I every day I'd have to like farmers carry my kettlebells in. That was another thing. Like you couldn't get kettlebells anywhere. So I bought bought a set of kettlebells and I like after I got exposed to CrossFit, I really fell in love with like kettlebell training. So I kind of took like a deep dive into that and was just doing like all these what looked like from the outside to people were like just these insane workouts in this, you know, in this Globo gym. And this lady finally was like, it's around the same time. They're like, Hey man, like you just can't be doing this stuff anymore. We really, I was like, can I leave my kettlebells here? And then anybody can use them if they want that, that way I would, I didn't have to carry them in and out every single day. And they're just like, gave me the bullshit. Like, well, due to liability concerns, we can't have it. So I'm like, all right. Well, fortunately, at the same time, this other lady came up to me and she's like, hey, like, I don't know what the hell you're doing, but I'm opening up like one of those 24 hour gyms. And if you want to, like, you could teach people how to use kettlebells at my place and I'll give you a, a free gym membership. And I was like, sold. Sold. Um, yeah. So in 2009, I started teaching people how to use kettlebells, really, like in this 400 square foot, like group fitness room. And within six months, we really kind of outgrew the spot. And one of the guys at the time was like, hey, my buddy has this like abandoned warehouse that he just like is storing his cars in. I think like if you made an offer, like you could go rent that and kind of branch out on your own. I was like, no, dude, like I, I'm not putting money in this thing. Like that's not like it's too risky. I got a full time job. I don't want to do it. And then, you know, I kind of sat and thought about it. And it was just like, well, I'll give it a go. Worst case scenario, like it all fails in a couple months. I will have enough. I'll have enough gym equipment to have a sweet home gym the rest of my life. Not so bad. And <laughs> so I was like, well, that was the ultimate, you know, the ultimate risk criteria. And took took a loan against my 401k at the time and $8,000 for it. Yeah. For $8,000, I can't remember, bought some stuff. And in August of 2010, opened up my own spot in a, in a warehouse. Wow. So it started with you farmers carrying kettles and a, and a lady approaching you and be like, I got a spot for you. And that was the genesis yeah. of the whole kind of movement. But yeah. I love that, man. You, and even as I, as I kind of grow older, like it's so many times it's the people you meet. And, and you don't even plan for things yeah. to happen. And then in hindsight, it's just beautiful when it happens like that. You made me a, a quick question, man. So, so when I, you know, I'm, I'm going through a functional training program, call it CrossFit if you want, but it's a functional training program. And whenever I see programming for a kettlebell movement, I think it's okay. And I could be completely wrong. And I want to hear your response to this, but like, I think it's okay to sub in a dumbbell. What is it about kettlebells in particular that people that love kettlebells love kettlebells and what am i missing by not including them in my own personal program yeah. I, I would say rule number one whatever you got is the best option at the time love it so right. you know if it calls for kettlebell swings and all you have is a dumbbell do dumbbell swings like you you can do that if you have access to the tools to me and this is like a you know what people can debate this all day long but to me like a one kettlebell is the ultimate piece of equipment you can use for the rest of your life you can take mm. it anywhere. 
one thing. There's such a wide variety of exercises and movements you can do with it. But really, it just comes down to it's much more, it's a ballistic strength and conditioning tool. So, you know, we're not looking at just doing, you know, three sets of 10 on a strict press with a kettlebell. You could like a kettlebell swing is like one of the ultimate tools that kind of bridges the strength and conditioning world. Yeah, I mean, if you if you do uh, here a simple workout like a ten minute AMRAP of fifteen kettlebell swings and, and ten burpees, as many times as you can do in ten minutes, like that will get you pretty darn fit. Just having that, and two, it's just like it's a little bit a kettlebell versus a dumbbell is just a, more ergonomic to hold on to. So it's got the handle and then the weight centered on the bottom, whereas a dumbbell that you you don't have that. And you can hold on to that handle and you can do longer, you can do higher volume rep stuff. Like, you yeah. know, a 10 minute, I think it's called like the secret service snatch test. So you do 10 minutes, max kettlebell snatches, switching between each arms. And that's where like the repetitive ballistic nature comes into it. That may, you can get kind of the same stimulus with just a dumbbell, but it's a little bit, it's more ergonomic along with your body than the dumbbell is. Yeah, no, Roger that. And real quick, Dale said a simple 15, was that 15 minute AMRAP as many rounds as possible? Was yeah, it could 15? be 10 or 15 or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That, that will crush you if you have not done that. <laughs> so what, what he's saying is set a timer and go back and forth between those two movements as many, basically supersets, but as many times as you can, that will crush people and highly encourage you to try it and find out. Yeah. I, I will, I'll say this on the ergonomic, if that's what you, that was your word, the ergonomic of it. I've noticed though, like when I do certain things, like what was I doing the other day? It was a front rack dumbbells. It was supposed to be a kettlebell step up. So essentially, mm -hmm. you know, you know this, but you load them here. Holding the dumbbells there just felt like really like awkward and hard yeah. after I got fatigued. And then the gym I was at had kettlebells. So I picked them up and something about the way I was holding them, yep. it just it just made it more efficient for my body to hold the weight. And then I was able to do more reps and more volume over time because of that. I didn't know the word ergonomic for it, but I yeah. find that they're just, they're much better if I have them to your point. Yeah. So. Yeah, for sure. And you know, like there, there's benefits of both, but you know, given the most, to me, the most bang for the buck, if I, if I had to choose between one kettlebell and one dumbbell, I could get a lot more done with a kettlebell than I could a dumbbell. All right. So you start off in a room and then you move to a warehouse. It sounds like you, you took some personal risk there. You took out a loan against your, you know, your savings and you, you jumped in and then you're, you're running a gym. How did people start coming to you? And so the, fortunately we already had like uh, built in clientele from the, from the spot before I would say Perfect. maybe 20, 25 people. It, that is, it was just like all referrals. So one client told another client, told another client, told another client. And another thing that really helped us too was like, this was early days of Facebook. So this was actually before I think like business pages were a thing. So I would just like take my, take whatever, like two megapixel phone I had at the time. It would just snap photos of people, post them on my Facebook page. We're talking like 2010 and it was unique. Like no one was doing this style of training in my area yeah. within like an hour and a half around me. And so and people looked at it like, oh, like this is, you know, they, it was like elements of strong, man. There was like gymnastic rings. There was like people climbing ropes. There was people pushing sleds. So there was like some novelty and 
and once pe- and like people were proud of what they were doing right so yeah it's it's and i'm not throwing shade here but it's you know it's it's not it's kind of difficult to be proud about doing 20 minutes on elliptical like no one's <laughs> going to post a picture of that and as like a badge of honor but when they saw like timmy or jane like pushing a pushing a truck or pulling a sled it was just like oh cool like what is that where you doing and that just kind of fueled more fueled the fire you're too kind to throw shade i will throw some shade when when i see like even today and i try not to even see these things but if i see someone doing like traditional bro split style bodybuilding with like motivational music i just did a lot of plates on a leg press Rah, like i'm screaming and i'm throwing shade you don't even have to acknowledge this but yeah. I think to myself, like big, big deal because it's not, there's nothing harder than when you are maxed out, go back to your workout, your AMRAP, you're maxed out and you decide to get up anyway and do more of those burpees, whether it's over a bar or box jump, like that, that pain, that like not pain, but like that challenge of your heart and your body and everything being gassed but then you push forward anyway, there's nothing like that until you experience it. The only thing that I think is similar that I've experienced is I practiced jujitsu for a while yeah, and that, yeah. that trigger, like that, like when you have somebody else and their willpower against you and you're exhausted, but you still decide to move forward, man, there's no leg press. There's no bicep curl. There, there's yeah. nothing that can impress me in that world. Like the stuff that we're talking about. So there's my shade. I'll throw it. <laughs> so. Yeah, man. So, all right, I digress. So, we, we, I want to get into some of your, you know, I'm, I'm sure you have amazing stories about the startup at the gym, but I know that you started Doc Spartan 2015. What was the genesis of that? And then, what I'd love to hear once you kind of talk through, and, and I'd love to, you know, just explain what Doc Spartan is and, and give some, you know, the people some, you know, access and know how, where to find it, but also Shark Tank and like that whole experience, man. I'd love to hear what that was like. So, you know, common theme with a lot of, ventures and, and so-called successes and they all they all sprung from the gym first so around 2013 uh, a buddy of mine we had started a nonprofit called team some assembly required and this was for adaptive athletes so men and women missing an arm or leg or a combination thereof who's oh, wow. you know still want to compete or do you know sort of fitness related sports or crossfit power man paralympics whatever and so working with those athletes where their limb fits in the prosthetic, we, I began to notice like, oh man, you guys get pretty gnarly, like wear and tear on your limb from the repetitive use of where the, you know, like I said, the, where the limb fits in the prosthetic, get pretty gnarly, like rashes and burns and scars. So there was a, a lady uh, at my gym who was like kind of making like all natural creams and lotions and selling them on the side. So I approached her one day, I was like, Hey, do you think you could come up with like a first aid salve or ointment? You know, we could, we could give to the guys on the nonprofit and then sell just here inside the gym because you know, people, people will rip their hands or they'll bust their shins every now and then, but it's just like a cool little first aid ointment. So she said, sure. She would figure out, work on some prototypes and she did. And we handed them all out to the people in the gym, just kind of be like, Hey, see if this works, you know, give us our feedback. And, you know, the feedback we got was pretty incredible. Like, you know, people were using it for anything from like, Hey, I put it on my new tattoo to, I just use it to help heal a scar to might use it on my, you know, kids diaper rash. So we began to see like all these multi-purpose 
usage for it. So we're like, okay, cool. Started selling it like here at the gym and then would post about it online, social media. And, you know, then my gym owner buddies were like, Hey, how do I get this? So started selling to folks that, that own gyms. And then people want to figure out like, Hey, well, Hey, how do I get some? So then it was just like, you know, Google how to do e-commerce online store. So before I know it, like I've got a, I've got an e-commerce store and we're like, you know, fulfilling orders and the, and Renee, Renee is her name and she, Renee was making everything. And so our goal was like, you know, like we just want to have like one online order every day. Like that'd be cool if we could do that. And then just kind of grew and grew. And before we knew it, like we get an email from a guy who's claiming to be an executive producer at Shark Tank, of which like neither one of us believed him. And <laughs> like Googled the guy and sure as shit, like he was his first picture of him is like holding Emmy Emmy Awards. We're like, oh shit. It must like, have been like, holy, holy yeah. crap. That was exciting. <laughs> and they said, hey, like we're looking for companies to for we're looking for veteran owned companies to come on the show. We, you know, think you've got a good product. They found us on social media. And uh, we're like, well, shit, why not? And, you know, before I know it, a year after we started the company, so in the summer of 2016, we're like out in, out in Hollywood on the Sony Pictures lot, like filming an episode of Shark Tank. <laughs> wow. The Portsmouth boy out there yeah. in, in Hollywood, right? What, uh, real quick, I want to ask what that experience is like on that, you know, talk us through actually showing up because I'm assuming there's some nerves there unless you're just like, you know, ice for veins, but showing up and on, you know, on a set like that. But so Evan Seal, co-founder of Verb Labs, he was the last guest on the show and, and he, he, you know, told a story about the early stages of starting that company. And they talked about just like getting so excited over an order. And he, he mentioned, these are my words, not his, but he was like, you know, you go from like the thrill of like, yeah, we got an order to like the, holy crap, like, how are we going to fulfill this? And what's, what's that like? So was there ever a time when you guys first started to take off and Doc Spartan was getting a lot of orders where like that also created some challenges that were maybe some anxiety around how to like keep up with the demand or was it just kind of like smooth sailing? You guys crushed it. No, you know, it's never been smooth sailing. I think it's got crushed as us, but it's just like, dude, I'll take those problems all day. Yeah. It's a good problem. You know, we'll get into it, but I have another business that happened down the road and, and it's kind of sporadic. Like it always goes ups and downs. And the girl who runs that company for me, she gets super anxious during the lull period. Like, what do we do? Is this a da, 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 da? And then when we're, and then when we get slammed, I always got a reminder, Hey, I'd rather you be concerned about problems to have instead of problems not to have. And so, dude, those are, those are great problems to have. And we're, and we're fortunate for them and we can always find a, find a way to make it happen. But those are way better problems to have than sitting there and looking at your phone, waiting for an order to to come in. Yeah. That sucks. Like that really sucks. Why, why are you, it feels like this is the way you are, but why are you able, whether it's a lull or whatever the opposite is when you're getting ordered, but why are you able to stay emotionally kind of straight and cool? It's because I'm old, man. Like I've been through it. I've been through it enough really is what it comes down to. You know, there's a great line in, in the Rudyard Kipling if, and it's the lines basically like if you can if you can meet triumph and disaster and treat those imposters both the same, like that's it. And like, I read that, I try to read that like once a week 
read the whole poem like once a week. And it's true, man. Like it, like Shark Tank was like, we can get into it. Shark Tank was great. Like we crushed it and it was awesome. But that fades. Like enjoy it while you can, but that stuff fades and you have to be on the next thing and ready to go for the next thing. And, and just understanding that like business, business will always be up and down. You hope that line trends in the right direction, but it's never a slow, steady line going upwards. Like it's peaks and it's valleys and you're tripping and you're falling and sometimes you're sprinting and you're running. But it's just kind of understanding that, you know, if you do, if you consistently try to do the right things, good things will happen. You know, I'm sitting here having this conversation with you and I realize we're in a, a podcast discussion, that, but at the same time, I'm I took off my hat there as like, you know, talking to you, hosting you to putting on my entrepreneur hat because, you know, Dale, I'm, I'm, I'm at the starting line, you know, and hearing that quote and hearing that wisdom and just to expect and to set my expectations around the fact that there will be ups and downs, but what's most important is how I respond to them. That's good. That's good wisdom, man. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. And he like, okay, well, what happens when the whole world shuts down? Like for, for COVID, you know what I mean? You no one, there was no playbook on what to do and, and how to do that stuff. But to me, the be, the companies that navigated the best were the ones that had the right mindset going into it. You know what I mean? And, and if you screw things up enough and if it looks like the whole world's coming to an end several times before, it's just like, oh, well, this is just, an, <laughs> this is just another checkpoint in the journey. Like we can, we can do this. And I remember telling my yeah. business partner one time, like, you know, cause we had to deal with, couple different businesses but you know the gym was pretty bad because it's just like well our service is in person like if things are locked down and no one's allowed to come back for however long like your business is going to go away and don't get me wrong like that's very scary but i remember just having a conversation with her and i was just like oh i started it from nothing before i can start it from nothing again heck yeah just having but that's based upon like experience knowledge plus experience finally gets you some wisdom down the road. Love that. Yeah. Shout out to a great friend of mine, Adam, Adam Kant. He actually owned five CrossFit style gyms in Northern New Jersey. So places like Hoboken, mm-hmm. some other towns, Jersey city. Anyways, he had that. I mean, that was what he was doing, right? So he had five of them. He was very successful. And I, I remember when, when COVID came along, you know, what that was kind of like for him and how he had to navigate that challenging. Right. But he, I mean, this guy like you, you know, entrepreneurial, lots of grit, push forward. And, and now he's, he owns another business and he's successful. So that's good stuff, man. So Shark Tank, what was that like, man? I mean, it sounds like it was unexpected. You show up, I'm assuming you don't have like a ton of, you know, say public speaking experience or anything like that. So yeah. walk us through, man. It's gnarly, man. It's really, you know, I would say it was the most high pressure civilian situation I've been in for sure. Because, you know, there's a there's a lot of lessons to learn from our experience on Shark Tank, but you know, I was a former intelligence officer, so like it was always ingrained to in me that you have to like know your enemy front back mm-hmm. right aside, and so that's always stuck with me. So like, all right, well, you know, we've been afforded this opportunity. It looks like we're going to make the show. So then it was just like I approached like each shark like they were a target. So they all have books, they all have podcasts. You know, I've seen every episode of every season multiple times. So just kind of like went into research, like pretty fanatic research mode about each shark and looking for, and then research about like every single company that had ever gone on the show and how their deals went. 
what had happened after and listened to their podcast and read their blog articles wow. and and all this stuff. It, so in addition to like rehearsing and fine tuning our own pitch, because you know, you for us, you saw us on screen for like six or seven minutes max, but we were in the tank for like 50 to 55. And then like another lesson is like the power of like your network. So I knew a couple guys who had actually like other veterans who had been on the show before. And they were gracious enough with me to like walk me through the process, explain to me the experience. And Griff from Combat Flip Flops, he told me he was just like, here's the deal, dude. Like it's a TV show. Like they don't give a shit about your company. They they care about ratings. And here's the two things that equal ratings. You either look really bad on TV or it's really good. Like there is no in between. Like you, they very they, you don't ever see companies that are just like, "Oh, well that's just kind of like an average appearance on shark tank it's either like super motivational super inspiring or you're just like what are these jackasses doing all <laughs> right and it, so basically it's just like it's it's you're either hero or zero and i was just like man that makes that makes a lot of sense and so i took that with me and then you just the only thing you could control when you go on that show is your 90 second pitch and so then it's like after you deliver your pitch, then you're just like at the mercy of their questions, being able to answer them. But if like you screw that first 90 seconds up, like sometimes it's just a hole that you can't get out of. Then it was just like rehearse, 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 and try to be as entertained as possible while you're doing it. Because inside baseball is like that film or that show only films twice a year. So each Probably they're going to see maybe a hundred companies each filming. And those guys are just humans. Like if they've been sitting there all freaking day and you get them late in the day, they're just tired. They're cranky versus like if you see them first thing in the morning. So you got to come out like swinging to get their attention, mm -hmm. grab their attention. I'll never forget. Like we were out there the night before we were having dinner with friends and I was just thinking like, ah. I was like, I'm going to do it. They're like, what are you talking about? I was like, I'm coming out with like two claps and a Ric Flair. Just like right. From, so right. And I just made that up like the night before. It was just like, Whoa. it just hit you. Yeah. And <laughs> you just got that idea. And they were all like, what the fuck is this guy's doing? And I just delivered the pitch. And then like what you're, what you can like, yeah, you got to know your shit, man. Like that's like, that's obvious. Like you got to know your numbers for us. Like it wasn't that bad. And I know I'm kind of going all over the place, but. It was just like, what's the risk criteria here? We didn't need money. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. We didn't actually need an investment because it was like a side hustle for me and it was a side hustle for Renee. And, you know, it was relatively like we started the company with like 200 bucks, the cost of ingredients at the time. So we weren't actually like needing this big time investment and it was like sink or swim for our company. We were just on there because we wanted the, the promotion you know, to get in front of a, a couple million people. And then to land the deal with the shark just provides like social proof to millions of people that your product and company is worth buying from. So it was just like, well, end of the day, it's just like, if even if we don't get a deal, if they air our episode, it's going to be, it's going to be a win-win. Now, if we look like a big jackass, then that might, you know, kind of put some negative PR around your company. But yeah. That's the only risk, I guess. But yeah. what a perspective there. Like it, it just, 
either it dawned on you or it had dawned on you, but it registered right before you went out there. It's that like, man, this is all, this is all gain. This is all win. This is, we don't need this. And like, that's liberating to think about it like that. Yeah. So it's completely, it's freeing. Like when you, I mean, there's just, and this is like a part of Matthew McConaughey's book, Green Lights, when he was talking about trying to get roles and finally his agent or somebody had to tell him like, listen, dude, like those cats can smell the desperation on you. Like if you go in there and you're desperate for something, like it's just a natural repellent to somebody. But if you, if your attitude, and I don't mean to be this, like you don't be cocky or arrogant about it, but it's just like, if you go in there thinking like, Hey, you want to be a part of that dude's journey. It's a much, your successes of closing on a deal are, are significantly higher versus you going in there. Like you, like this guy, this person needs to be the savior. And if I don't have him, it's just like, that's just like a natural, natural repellent. Yeah, dude. I love that. A couple of like real, just kind of specific questions. So uh, the sharks, as you call them, are they briefed? On you before you get, oh, so they're hearing this cold, like cold. Pit. Coming in cold, dude. Like, in a matter of fact, like you, you have to, they both, like you and the sharks have to fill out a disclosure form that they have no, they have no knowledge of, of you whatsoever. Yeah. That, that changes just my understanding of almost the dynamics and maybe even the pressure of that 90 second elevator pitch. Like that's it. Like you got 90 seconds to like get their attention. Are, are there entrepreneurs that get up there that are like the, the moderate, I don't know, middle of the road ones that aren't either terrible or awesome that don't make the show? They just don't even include them on there? Yeah. So the way it kind of works is I, I don't, the last time I looked at this, but yeah, I think there's like 40,000 applications per year. And I think those wow. get whittled down to like 200. And of the 200, um, like 100 actually go on the show per season. And of that hundred, about half get deals versus no deals. So the producers, this is what Griff was explaining. He's like, the producer's job is just to put entertaining companies in front of there. If you, even if you like you had a billion dollar new stapler and it's pretty boring, like Shark Tank's not going to air that because there's just, it's no entertainment value to the customer or to the audience. So the production job does a really good job of finding neat, interesting products along with neat interesting owners yeah or maybe even owners you want to root for like you and veterans right or villain there are some dirt bags that go on there and you just want to see that guy fail too yeah which is still compelling tv right exactly um so you, you go out and you you hit your your flare woo I, I like i assume everyone knows what that is and i'm not going to make you do it but look up rick, rick flair yeah. woo if you don't know what that is but it is hilarious and I think it's amazing that something put that on your mind the night before. But you hit your your woo. Obviously, you crushed the presentation. You and Renee. What's it like afterwards? Like you know, you, you get the, you get the deal, and then what is like the the implementation of that look like? And how? And here's a question: And how much hands on involvement? Who who is the shark that that wound up working with you? So we got to uh, deal with Robert Hershevik. Okay. How much how much guidance or what what does that interaction look like going forward? So this is like very interesting because most people see like. The company goes on the show, they get a deal, and it's awesome. We filmed in June of 2016, so therefore we knew we got a deal then, at least like a handshake deal. Our episode did not air until February of 2017. Okay, so we're talking eight, you know, seven, eight months there of in between. And then, then like you, you can, so then you leave the handshake deal, but Here's the thing. They don't, they only know you from that 50 minutes that you're in there. 
you could have been completely fabricating the entire story and your numbers and everything. But then, so in our case, Robert Hershebeck's team immediately met with us and then we, they started going through our due diligence process. Okay. So they're, they're checking to make sure everything you said is legit. They're looking at whatever numbers you had, they're looking at whatever sales numbers you had and that. So even though you left with the deal handshake deal, and a lot of deals actually don't go through. And what Shark Tank has done in the last last couple of seasons, when, really when ours started, is they try not to air deals that actually didn't go through. That's smart. I can see why. And so, but here's the deal. And I'm not throwing shade on Robert. Like I would want, I would want him to do the same thing. He's not signing that deal until you get an air date. Okay. Say more about that. I I, I think I get why. Right. So on the show shook hands everything's great you know we're starting to go through the due diligence process and everything could look great there but if for some reason the show would decide not to air our portion of it he's not going to do the deal because it's only beneficial to an investor if it goes on tv you know what i'm saying for promotional aspects like why would you sign a deal with a company and it doesn't get in front of five million people there's no sense in doing that. Of which, you know, obviously we didn't know that <laughs> at the time. So now we're looking, and then contractually from the show, they contractually only have to tell you three weeks in advance of your air date because the season runs from September to May. There's a lot of uh, ambiguity <laughs> and uncertainty. Dude, in that, yeah, that well, journey, welcome, huh? welcome to my life for about eight months there. But then you have to plan for the best case scenario because the last thing you want is for your stuff to air. It goes awesome. Then you're caught with your pants down and you can't fulfill. Then you get, it's literally you have a once in a lifetime opportunity. And if you screw that up, you're never getting that back. Was Is your friend's name Griff? Combat Flip Flops? Yeah. Is that what you said? Yeah. Griff? Did, did Griff, for not forewarn you, but prepare you for that kind of journey? For him, there wasn't any sense. Like it was... All I all I needed and wanted from him is like, what is it like from now to the show, and what's it like on the show? Because we we could have gone on there and not got a deal, and then there's no sense in him telling us about it. But then, you know, to Robert's credit, they helped us out along the way on certain things, you know, checklist of items, certain things to do, certain things to prepare. Because the better we do, the more money they're going to make as well. But it's like we went on a wing and a prayer. So we just started, you know, this is another like risk thing. So we had to hire a full-time person. We had to go take a loan out all on a prayer that we would get an air date. Yeah. And you uh, shot when? When was the actual shooting? We again? filmed in June. So from June to February, you're basically in limbo, but trying to make sure you're planning and preparing for when that that switch flips. Yep. You're ready to roll and meet the meet the demand, right? Man, yep, for sure. Wow. That must have been something. Yeah. Well that yeah. So yeah, we took a pretty substantial loan out to to hire a person and to start building equipment or start building products. And then fortunately, like we got the air date and it aired and it went well. And then, you know, give you like a frame of reference. By that point we had been around for little almost two years so in the entire history of our company we had done like close to 2,000 orders within five days after airing we had 4,000 orders Oof. 
so two years we, and then five days. We doubled oh, wow. we doubled two years worth of orders within five days, which is awesome. But like you were we were talking about earlier, it's like, okay, well now you gotta you gotta fulfill that. And people want that shit fast. So that's where it comes into like, you know, the standard saying like prior planning prevents piss poor performance. Like the more you can plan out, there's there's calculated risk, there's certain things that are unknown, but the more you can kind of plan out get things going, hope for the best, prepare for the worst kind of thing and just have like an insane work ethic, you know? And I'm very proud to say that the team got all 4,000 orders out within five days. Wow, man. Well done. That's execution. And by the way, the, the quotes coming out of this conversation are just gold, man. Keep them, keep them coming. You got so many good quotes for, for anybody, let alone, you know, entrepreneurs or anyone dealing with adversity or unpredictability. So how, so Dr. Barton, tell, tell us where to find uh, those products today. Yeah, DocSpartan.com. You know, we we basically have a whole suite of handcrafted, all natural skincare and grooming products. Our the, the product we took on Shark Tank is called Combat Ready Ointment. It's completely all natural, multi-purpose first aid ointment. So, what you know, if you're in the military, you chew up your feet from rucking, hand blisters, like I said, nicks, cut scrapes, wounds. Like it's a it's a one one kind of stop to one stop shop to to heal them all. I love it. It's kind of like the Swiss Army knife of ointments. And I heard you say earlier that people were using it on uh, baby uh, diaper yeah, rash diaper, too. Like, you know, I've got six-year-old twins and they've like literally spent their whole lives like in that stuff all over them and they go, they know where it's at and they, 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 they love it. Yeah. Quick, quick aside, man, I'm doing some quick math here. I'm a quick study, but it sounds like the whole, the whole Shark Tank experience was in 2018? 2017. Yep. 2017. Yep. And then the next year you had twins. Same year. Same year. That's a busy, that's a busy year. <laughs> Something I want to, I want to hear a lot about is the counseling center. Yeah. Okay. So it, it, it sounds like 2018, tw- 2019, this is when this came through. And this is really a huge part of Small Town Strong, the documentary that's out right now. Again, I'm going to say that again, Small Town Strong, amazing, amazing documentary. My wife and I watched it two times. Incredible. Can't, Thanks, can't really, can't recommend people watch that much. We'll link to it and, and promote that with you. But Talk us through the, the counseling center and where you, how you found yourself helping those that are suffering from addiction and all those amazing things that you're doing. Yeah. So, you know, kind of came off the heels of a successful appearance on Shark Tank. And my, my friend at the time was going to the gym and he said, hey, man, like I'm getting ready to take a job at the counseling center. I'm going to be their general counsel. And I think, you know, CrossFit's been, he told me CrossFit was instrumental in his own personal recovery. And he wanted to find a way for us to like essentially provide CrossFit classes to their, to their staff and clients. So of course, like I, I jumped at the opportunity. I, I knew zero about addiction and recovery. And if anything, like I had a very negative viewpoint about it as people who were addicts themselves. But I was like, yeah, man, I think it'd be great. Cause it was like the number one still is like the number one issue in our town. And so in, in, uh, you know, the fall of 2018, we, we started doing this like little test pilot program to do CrossFit classes for, for their clients. And, you know, it was the most kind of within short order, the most meaningful, impactful thing we could do. Cause if you're, if you're a coach or a trainer, you get it, man. Like you, like your, your kind of unique power in life is to be a force multiplier for other people. And like you, you watch them kind of grow and do things that they thought they were impossible and, you know in my case it was just like okay watching somebody get their first pull-up or watching somebody do uh, 
overcome a physical obstacle that they never thought they could do for before. And, and then firsthand knowing like how that transfers to life outside of the gym. But we take that same kind of unique power and apply it to somebody who, who's really in need of it. It's more than witness their successes in the gym. It's being a part of, hey, I got custody of my kids. Hey, I got my first car. Hey, you know, I've paid off all my debts and, you know, watching them really kind of grow and become a successful person is, is to me like, you know, the most meaningful stuff I've been a part of. Yeah. Turning underdogs into overachievers. Yeah, yeah. man. With the counseling center, are these, are these, is that an inpatient treatment facility? It's both. Outpatient? It's both. Okay. So is this, you start this, is this a service or classes that you and your friend, what's your friend's first name? Billy, big part of the, the, the documentary as yeah. well. Is this something where like, okay, you guys agree on it. You just say, okay, here's when it's, here's when the classes are going to be available. And then they kind of promote that to the, can I, do I call them patients? Clients. Yeah. Clients. Yeah. And then the clients are like, okay, I'll opt into this. And then they show up to class and they're like, what do I do? Is that kind of the basic flow of it? Yeah. So it was just like, hey, we worked out a contract and, you know, figured a flat rate that we would do classes and did like a month trial period, you know, because if it's something, it's something that didn't work, we obviously, they didn't want to be paying for it. And we know we want to be able to provide our value. So we developed a, a contract and then went over, they had, they, they bought this facility and, and turned it into a, a part of it, into a gym. And so the director of the health and wellness center at the time, his name is Max. He's also in the documentary. He just took it as his job to like, Hey, we, we're going to do a morning. I think we just started doing one morning class and he just went and wrangled clients and said, Hey, you got to try this out. Hey, you got to try this out. Hey, you got to try this out. And very similar to like starting your own gym. Like you're not going to open your door with a hundred people right from the rip. But over time, if you do a good enough job, you get a core group of five, then the five becomes 10 and the 10 becomes 20. And that's how it grows. Did you, did you personally coach the first class, the first ever one? Oh, yeah, yeah, in yeah. That? yeah. Yeah, for sure. What was that like? There was some apprehension on, on my behalf. It was just like, man, a, a lot of them was their situation in life was either you go to recovery, you go to jail. And so it was just like, it's not like you're the normal folks that you're dealing with, but at the end of the day, it's just like, then that's where the military man just does such a great job of providing instruction to trainers to train. Like, you know, and the number one rule I remember is like, when in charge, take charge. Like if, if you go in there and you're apprehensive or you're not confident in, in your delivery, then you're going to lose attention of the audience pretty quick. And then it's just going in there knowing that like, obviously you're the subject matter expert in, in your field and they're just happy to get it, happy that you're there and happy to get a good workout in. So overcame that pretty quick. And then like, once we did open it up to my other coaches, we did, you know, started with some female coaches and I was always there. They were scared as well. Cause it was just something that we weren't, we weren't familiar with. I'm going to throw a small town strong. I mean, the, the documentary does an amazing job telling, you know, somewhat of the origin story and walking us through. And, and I think most impactful for me personally, Dale, and I did mention this to you, but they, they really zero in on some of your, your gym members and their journeys and their experiences and kind of show, I guess I'd call it like before and after type, but like just really the, the impact that it has on their life. And then just the, the community and the strength of that. It's, it's a beautiful documentary, man. I, I really kudos. How, how did that come to life? How did, 
how did filmmakers get involved and, and want to come in and kind of tell that story? Well, so there I was. No, it, the short answer is because of my best friend. His name's Chase Millsap. And he, he's a former, he actually has a really interesting story himself, but he graduated from the Naval Academy and then decided after a couple of years in the Marine Corps, he wasn't cool enough. So he then went and transferred services to the, and became a, a Green Beret in the Army. And so when he got out, like he ended up, he started dating a girl out in LA who happened to be from Portsmouth, Ohio. And I happened to have gone to prom with her back in the day. And then it turns out, like, when we went to go film Shark Tank, they were living there. And it was just like, hey, and his wife, Chase's wife's name is Miley. And it was just like, hey, while we're out there, let's go hang out with Miley. And that's when Chase and I met back in 2016. So when he got out, his Miley was working, working as a producer on Big Bang Theory. And Chase was like cutting his teeth, kind of working in the in the media entertainment world out in out in LA. And, you know, I had one too many beers after we got our deal uh, with Chase out in LA. And then we immediately became best friends. And he every time he would come and visit Portsmouth to see Miley's family, he'd always hang out at the gym. And then after a while, he's just like, man, I think there's just like a cool story here. I bring my camera along and, and start getting footage. And so he, he, he did just that. And so it was just kind of chase for a couple of years, just getting footage of cool stuff that he'd see. And we thought we had enough for like kind of like a developmental deal, whether it was like a, a documentary or a series or whatever. And then, you know, you, you watch the documentary, you'll see, but there was something that happened with a friend of ours that we were kind of like, all right, well, we're, we're not going to wait on Hollywood to pick this project up. We're going to go ahead and finance and produce it ourselves mm. in the summer of 2023. Actually, in the summer of 2022. Yeah, summer 22. And that's how it came to be, man. It was just like Chase and I put up put up equal amounts of money to, to get the initial funding. Then we picked up a third financing partner later on. And then once we had something, we got a distribution deal. And here we are now. Well, once again, God putting people in your life and you kind of walking, walking down the path and trusting, right? Wow, man. Shout out to Chase. Good instinct because it is an amazing story that needs to be told and should keep getting told. Yeah, yeah. And the product itself, regardless of the story, like the film is just really fantastic. Like it's really well done. Chase's brother, turns out he, Chase's brother is a cinematographer for National Geographic. So he came down, we hired him for for about two weeks to get a bunch of really awesome shots. And and that's why the film looks the way it does. Looks incredible. And I uh, understand he just got nominated for at least one award. Yeah. So we, yeah, we've already won two, two awards at a film festival and we're up for the best documentary feature in another one. Amazing. Let's go. Let's yeah. go. That's awesome, dude. That's so cool. How did, how did folks find that, that uh, documentary? Yeah. So if right now, as of like, Two days ago, we just started streaming on Amazon Prime. So if they're if they're a Prime member, just search Small Town Strong and uh, you can watch it there. It's included in your subscription. Uh, if you're not, you can rent or buy it on any other you know video download platform like Google Play or I, Apple TV or whatever. YouTube. Yep. That's where we watch it. My wife and I watch it on YouTube, actually. I didn't want to keep it too long. I know we're already, we, we're over Dale, but a, a question, a question that I, I have asked everyone that's been on the, the podcast so far is if you could give 
the younger, pick a younger version of you, mm. the younger Dale, one piece yeah. of advice had limited time to do it. We're talking like a paragraph. What would that advice be? I would say at the forefront of every decision you make, let it be because you're trying to do the right thing for the right reasons for the right people. And if you, if you follow those three criteria, things typically have a way of taking care of themselves. Give me that again. The, the right, do the right thing for the right reasons for the right people. For the right people. I love it. I love it. That's great. Yeah, man, I can't tell you enough. I, I appreciate you so much for coming on. I've got so much wisdom to share. I look up to you. And if it's okay with you, when I run into those those lulls or those challenges, I'm going to text you. <laughs> Perfect. You better. Yeah. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for coming on the show. Hosted by Alton Fitness, this podcast is an extension of our mission to empower individuals to use fitness and community to break free from alcohol and other harmful addictions to live their best life yet. The Live Fit Break Free Podcast.